I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about what is happening in our country with COVID these days, and the situation is evolving rapidly, I have my dear friend, mentor, colleague, and one of the smartest people I know on all things COVID and global health policy, Dr. Steve Morrison, who is the head of our Global Health Policy Center here at CSIS. Steve and I also co-host the Coronavirus Crisis Update podcast, which comes out weekly, sometimes twice a week. And we've been doing it. We, I think we've done 50 episodes. Almost 80. Almost 80. Oh, my gosh. Steve, it is so good to have you here. There's a lot of confusion out there. But before we get to the confusion, let's talk about the situation now. You know, President Biden, by all accounts, you know, he started out with the mission of getting 100 million shots, you know, into arms in the first 100 days of office, it's going to be closer to 200 million shots. And by this weekend, half of American adults will have at least one of the two vaccinations. If they're taking Pfizer or Moderna, they'll have the one J&J shot. But the variants are really complicating, in particular, the B117 variant is really complicating the situation. And COVID cases were up this week 20% what they were in March. So give us a sense of what is going on and are the gains that we're making being erased? Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great to be with you again. You know, we had a terrible winter, right? Uh, January 8th, I think we hit over 300,000 cases in a single day and 4,500 deaths in a single day. We had a seven-day average of 250,000 cases per day. That's just an unthinkable, staggering level. And we've been unrolling the, 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 the vaccines, and, and they're starting to gallop, right? I mean, we're now at 20% of, of American adults are fully vaccinated and over 30% have received a, a first a first vaccine, and we're, we're hitting well over 3 million a day. Last Saturday or Sunday was 4 million. The supply pipeline is full and growing, and the distribution points are humming, and many more than we had. And we're, we're moving forward in that regard. And, and by some early point in June, mid-June to, to early July, we're going to hit somewhere in the order of 70% of American adults 260 million adults will have at least received their first dose, if not their second dose. We're going to, by the end of the summer, we're going to be very far along. So that is the good story. That's the story of success building on the Trump administration's Operation Warp Speed, building that out. We've had extraordinary good fortune in the quality of and safety efficacy of the vaccines we have. Let's admit it, man. We have Pfizer and Moderna and J&J are great vaccines and they're coming on stream. We never could have predicted we'd have so much good fortune. So over the course of the winter, we started driving those numbers down and we got to about 60,000 per day. 
Death counts came down to about a thousand. We need to get to 10,000 in order to get control over this, this virus within our country. You remember last year during the lockdown, the May, the March, April lockdown, we got down to 20,000. We got close to 10,000. Then we lifted the controls prematurely. We headed into summer and it bounced back to 65 very rapidly by July. We brought it down again. Then we hit the winter and it skyrocketed up to 250. So people are very nervous right now because we've got to 65 and then we 60, 65, we hit a plateau. Now, as you pointed out, it's bounced back up by 20. What's happening? Well, people thought seasonality was going to drive it further down as we as we exited winter and began to go outdoors and have warmer weather. Uh, we haven't seen that. So what's bouncing these numbers back up? Well, variants have entered the equation now. Uh, they are the dominant virus in the United States. They account for almost 30% of all recorded cases. We have very limited genomic sequencing capacity in the United States, so it's probably much higher than that. But what we do know is it's almost 30% and growing quite rapidly. And we have the other variants in the United States and they're growing too. We have the P1 from Brazil. We have the B1351 from South Africa. We have our own variants that have emerged, California, New York, coming forward. So a lot of anxiety about that. We've also had uh, increase in mobility. People are traveling. They're letting their guard down. States are reopening prematurely. People are letting their guard down in terms of masking, social distancing, where spring breaks. We have people wanting to get outside. It's, it's human nature after this terrible winter. People are doing that, and that's driving our numbers up, too. 40,000 people are packing into baseball stadiums in Arlington, yeah. Texas. Right. And, and, you know, the president has, President Biden, you know, he came into office. He had certain advantages at his back, right? He was inheriting the Operation Warp Speed, could build on that. He, had, he was inheriting these great vaccines. And he could he been executing. He didn't have any responsibility for the for the great failures of 2020. Uh, he could move forward. The variants. One very important point: the variants did not arrive during winter. In our case, they arrived in the UK and Europe in winter and shot the numbers way up into the sky. We were fortunate in having the variants arrive later as our numbers were coming down. We could have we could have had a far worse outcome. He had a plan in action that he had put together carefully for six months before coming into office. He got the 1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan passed. So he's he's got a plan. He's got a team in place. He's executing, but he does not control. He does not control what governors, those governors who say, forget it. You know, we're going to throw the doors open. We don't care. And and a lot of uh, a lot on ideological grounds and political ideological and partisan grounds. Are, are not playing playing along on this. So we've got Florida, we've got Texas, we've got other states that are that are being rather defiant and going their own their own way. And we also have a lot of hesitancy, which is another issue that we as we are shifting out of uh, scarcity of supply into great abundance of supply because the contracts that we have with these producers, these vaccine developers are coming forward and we're going to, between now and June, we're going to be sitting on a, on a massive stockpile of vaccines that will be able to vaccinate every American, including children, and leave some reserves for uh, booster shots or other uses. We're heading into that period, but now one of the big questions is, will people take those up? We now have in certain states, 
vaccines going unused because we have high hesitancy. What we've seen in that regard is a couple of things. One is very positive. The percentage of Americans who have either eagerly gone out and gotten vaccinated or eagerly await vaccines and want to get them as soon as possible, that number has risen by over 10% to over 55%. So the majority of Americans, enthusiastic, engaged, moving forward. Those in the middle, those on the fence, the maybes, maybe I'll wait, maybe I'll see what my friend says, maybe I'll see how this guy I'm concerned about, how fast the process was. I've got a bunch of other concerns. The maybe group was at about 30%. It seems to have shrunk a bit to about 22%, but it's still there. That's a population that has to be engaged, convinced, listened to in terms of what their concerns are. Then you've got about 15% who are hard over refusals and another 6 or 7% who are saying, we will only take a vaccine if forced to, if required to. And that you add those numbers up, if you've got 22% that are in the no category, how are you going to get to 80 to 85% coverage, which people are saying is sort of the requisite for herd immunity, particularly when we have the variants. So, and the, and the last thing I'd say on that score is among the hesitant, we become aware in recent weeks by some of the survey data coming forward that over half of Republican males are saying they will not take the vaccine. And that's a concentrated problem in terms of the younger Republican voter, the more rural. And how are, how is that population going to be reached? Who do they trust? Who will they listen to? That's a startling number, which suggests that perhaps the vaccine is becoming politicized, be- becoming part of a kind of partisan identity issue, which we are trying, everyone's trying desperately to avoid that outcome. It can't begin to resemble masks in terms of being part of a tribalist identity or a partisan identity. So people are concerned about that and trying to think about that. Well, I want to ask you about that. And and if that's part of, you know, an anti-science movement that's been percolating or even well-established in some quarters. But before I do that, you know, thanks to the really excellent research of my intern, Lauren Adler, I want to ask you about the regional concentration of this. Um, Lauren pointed out to me that just five states New York, Michigan, Florida, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey account for 43% of all current COVID-19 cases in the U.S. right now. And, you know, these states are home to just 22% of the country's population. So this suggests that this is a regional problem. But I think what I'm hearing you saying is that the variant is so unpredictable. And given the fact that we have vaccine hesitancy, and resistance, and, and of course, the confusion that's going on about vaccines, we could have a, a major outbreak amongst other states as well. We could. I mean, what we are seeing, we, you know, since the beginning, right, of this pandemic, we've seen this regionalization where there's, you know, we had the extraordinary outbreak in New York, New Jersey, right, in the early phases. Then it came down. And then we and then we saw a migration in the South and the West. And we saw the upper Midwest. And now we're seeing this pattern where Michigan is is hot and we're seeing big upticks, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and we're seeing bump ups in Florida as well. I don't think that says much to us about other other parts of the country being less vulnerable. I think the nature of this virus is that we live with a certain uncertainty around what the next move is going to be, what the next regional concentration is going to be. Let me say two things. One is We have 20% of American adults fully vaccinated. 
We've got over 30% with first vaccine and the numbers are rising rapidly thanks to the success of our program. We also have an estimated 25 to 30% of Americans who are carrying some form of immunity because they were infected. So when you add those two numbers together, that gets us to over half of American population that may be carrying some form of protection today. Now, those who were infected, we don't know how long that protection lasts. It may only last three months. It, some of it may have deteriorated and gone away. But some analysts, Tom Fried and others are saying, look, and Scott Gottlieb, look, the threat of a massive surge in this country is going to run up against that reality. And, and let's keep that in mind. Let's keep that in mind. We have created something that's going to create going to create a barrier for us. We also have, even though infections are increasing, deaths are decreasing. Great point. And that's second point here is the vaccines have been concentrated on elderly in the nursing homes, healthcare providers, and now people in the over 65 category, the doors are throwing, being thrown open, right? Towards full universal access. But we have taken extreme illness and death away from the older population and the numbers that are covered above 65, I think it's over 70% now. That's an incredible achievement. And so that vulnerability has been removed. What remains here is, first of all, the, the uncertainty around the variants. The variants are moving faster. They're more lethal. They're hitting youth. Youth are the least protected. They're the least, they're the least compliant on behavioral controls and restrictions. So we're seeing the hospitalization rates bumping back up. It's a much younger profile and the variants are changing. So people are thinking they're okay. And we're also thinking, okay, the, so far, what we know is that the, the Pfizer, Moderna, J&J vaccines both hold up pretty well against the UK variant. And so we don't need, it's not going to knock the pins out from underneath the effectiveness of this. But what people are fearful of is what comes next. Because the variants will continue to appear as long as there are large populations with uncontrolled transmission, where you get constant replication of the virus and constant mutation. And obviously, we have a large population in the United States with uncontrolled transmission, as does Brazil and India, parts of Europe, and on and on. And these variants travel fast. They land on our shores almost instantly. And so people are looking at that. The other thing I'd say is, when we look comparatively at which states in the United States have put in place good systems for distributing vaccines, which are the, have the readiness in place, which are delivering the highest percentage to the target populations and getting their populations at a fast clip. We have high performing states, which tend to be smaller, coastal or northern, not exclusively. Alaska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Maine, Hawaii, those states are doing very, very well. The ones that are doing very poorly, sadly, tend to be Southern and tend to be conservative. And so that means that we have a disparity growing in terms of performance on vaccines. So that there, you're going to have populations that are underserved in those low performing states where as we get the next wave, it's going to hit them pretty hard. It's going to hit them harder than those in Maine or in Alaska or in South Dakota. So that's another thing to keep in mind. The third thing I'd say to keep in mind is we need visibility into the problems that we're facing. We need to have better PCR testing, 
for individuals so we can verify at an individual level you've been, you've been sick and exposed or not. And if you've been sick and exposed, we need the system that isolates you and puts you into quarantine after you've been tested. And we need the contact tracing in order to chase down the other folks that may have been exposed. We need we need more antigen testing to test the population to know what's going on in that university or what's going on in that community. We need serology testing and we need genomic sequencing that will tell us where these variants are appearing. We have the money for those programs in the American Rescue Plan, but those are not going to be created overnight. So there's a lag between all of the progress we've seen in getting the vaccines up and running and out versus the creation of those those local capacities that are testing, genomic sequencing, contact tracing, all of that, which are going to give us the confidence as we get our numbers down. Let's say we're successful, we get down to 10,000. We're still going to have outbreaks in our communities and we need to have the systems in place locally to know where those outbreaks are going to happen and chase them down and, and give people the confidence that we're, yes, we have to live with this. It may become endemic, but it's not going to, the danger and the fear will be radically reduced as to what it means. You know, earlier this week, we had Washington Post reporter Frances Stead Sellers on our podcast, and she said something really interesting to both of us. She said that people are getting vaccinated and they're thinking that it makes them bulletproof, it makes them Superman, Superwoman. But really what getting vaccinated does is it contributes to public health. And it makes, you know, and if all of us get vaccinated, it contributes to, you know, herd immunity and, and makes us all safer. But what we were talking about a couple minutes ago was vaccine resistance. And you cited the stat that 50% of Republican men are saying that they will not get the vaccine. This is according to a recent study that showed that 49% responded they wouldn't get the vaccine of Republican men compared with only 6% of Democratic men in the same study said that they wouldn't get the vaccine. You have other populations. You have members of the Cherokee Nation have said they've been hesitant. You have members of the Latinx community in the Southwest, specifically in Arizona, who have been slow to get the vaccine. And part of that is because vaccine appointment websites couldn't be translated into Spanish. You have African-Americans, Black Americans who have low faith in the healthcare system and other cultural issues that they've faced with the healthcare system over the years that have made them hesitant. How do we mitigate these factors that we're facing right now to get us to herd immunity. Um, we've also been told, you and I have, by people like Peter Hotez, that we're not going to be able to get these people vaccinated. And the only way we're going to be able to get to herd immunity is through vaccinating children. So what are we going to do here, Steve? Well, I think we, did, we need to remain optimistic and vigilant and hopeful and move forward with what we have. The herd immunity as a concept, if we say we need to get to 80 to 85%, Earlier, I think before we got into the, the world of variants, that was seen as a kind of hard target that was going to then lead to liberation. Well, it's a, it's, that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at living in a world in which there are pockets of resistance. Uh, there's all this scientific uncertainty that we have to factor in. There are variants where we're going to have to perhaps move towards booster shots, third shots, maybe new vaccines on a regular basis that are, that are adjusted like flus are to the variation of the virus on a regular basis. We may be, if, it, if it's becoming endemic, we may be wearing masks in the wintertime. We may be 
become accustomed to winter surges and the like. On the question of hesitancy, it's many different populations. That's true. We have not taken an approach that's a national approach in terms of relying on large national campaigns. President Biden has put, I don't know, it was $10 million recently into some ad- ad- advertisements nationally. But the overwhelming uh, focus and emphasis in outreach to populations that are reluctant, those who have experienced, who are experiencing gross disparities, who have historical reasons for mistrust of the health system, the black community, Hispanic community, Native American community, they have to be engaged with a very targeted form of listening and of understanding their concerns and and bringing into that dialogue trusted messengers, people who have credibility, people who they want to listen to. And what we've heard is that, of course, when you do that, it's very intensive, it's very demanding, it's very retail in some ways. It requires a lot of thoughtfulness and preparedness for this. When, that, when those approaches are done, people relax, they begin to understand, they feel like they're being respected and their concerns are being addressed, and they make good decisions. And we're seeing the evidence of that. The numbers with regard to vaccine confidence and trust among the Black and Hispanic and Native American communities have improved significantly. We've had some, some huge success stories like Navajo Nation today. And I was talking to one of the congressional offices that leads in this area this week who is saying, look, if you if you look across the 500 Native American communities within the United States, not all of them are performing well, but the majority of them are outperforming the non-Native American communities in their states. I found that kind of astonishing. So what do we do now on uh, with respect to uh, those Republican males? And it goes beyond Republican males, too. It's it's Republican voters. A third of Republican voters are saying they're going to be resistant, which that's another very big number. And, you know, I think there again, we get into a targeted approach. It needs to be done in a very careful way. Frank Luntz, you're familiar. I mean, Frank Luntz, the very respected Republican pollster. I was most impressed that he took the initiative. He partnered with a local foundation. He brought together 20 hesitant voters, Republican voters, very diverse group from around the nation for a couple of hour consultation on Zoom. Uh, He brought in some key experts to speak with him, including Tom Frieden. And they had a survey instrument to try and unearth how they were seeing these issues. And at the end of that period, 19 of 20 were willing to accept the vaccine on their own terms, you know, and yeah, they flipped the script. That was great. And interestingly, what they did not want to hear was they did not want to be lectured at. They didn't want PSAs. They didn't want politicians telling them what to do because I think the subtext was they'd seen this politicization around all of these issues during the 2020 election race and the like, and it turned them off. It turned them off. They felt like their health and well-being was being put at risk or being forgotten in all of this debate and accusations around uh, the development of vaccines and the like, and they wanted the they wanted to hear from the real experts, the people that they could trust, and they wanted that those people to answer their specific concerns. And when that happened, it it had an immediate effect, which was quite dramatic. Now, how do you replicate that? I still that doesn't mean that the Republican leadership's off the hook. I think 
that hesitancy that we're seeing in in Republican voters and, and males in particular, that's a legacy of the confused and contradicting messaging that came about in during the Trump administration. Well, that needs to be sorted out in a way. And former President Trump spoken a couple of times recently publicly, which was helpful. And we have others that are stepping forward. Hugh Hewitt has become a big, a very respected conservative columnist, has become very outspoken uh, about vaccines. That's great. That's great news, too. We need more voices of that kind that people turn to and respect. Steve, we'll have to end here today. But next week on the coronavirus crisis update, we'll be having Deborah Burks and we will be discussing all of this and more. So our listeners can tune in there. Thank you so much for lending your insight. And um, this is an important discussion that we'll keep having on this podcast and on the coronavirus crisis update. So thanks for being here. Thank you, Andrew. See you next week. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 